2: Hello, I'm and Dieb and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, episode 44. A show that is to comedy and politics what the Trump administration's alternative facts are to actual real-life facts. On that note, I'm very pleased to announce that since this show took a break a couple of weeks ago, the Trump administration press secretary, Sean Spicer, has kindly looked at the podcast stats and tells me that we have one million and a half listeners. Though I've actually looked at the real evidence and sadly I'm fairly sure it's only just four of you and most weeks you're all half listening. So yeah, look, uh, we are back and I'm so sorry to have left you alone during the last few weeks but it is okay, I return to you now at the turn of the tide. Uh, That's not so much a Lord of the Rings reference or a possibility of hope but more a comment on what may happen to the seas with President Trump's climate change denial policies. Yep, President Donald J. Trump is now the bloated orange head of America as he was inaugurated as the 45th Commander-in-Chief last week in a ceremony that could only be described as a cross between a CD from a service station bargain bin and the sort of address a president might give in a low-budget disaster movie about volcanoes starring Dean Cain. Barack Obama, the 44th President of America, finished his last week with an eloquent and graceful speech, awarded his Vice President Joe Biden the Medal of Freedom, which means he no longer has to live in a lamp anymore or something, and granted more pardons than an elderly British man being served by a foreign waiter. Then, like a dark version of the ending of Toy Story 3, Obama handed over his toys to their new owner, Donald Trump, knowing full well that it's unlikely any of them will be safe in hands quite so tiny. Trump's inaugural speech focused mostly on nationalistic tone, saying that from now on it'll be America first, but I'm betting that's just in all their World Series sports that only have teams from America in. Like something the Joker might say before he electrocutes everyone, Trump said that they were transferring power from Washington and giving it back to you, the people, stating that the forgotten men and women of America will be forgotten no longer. Which is ironic, as judging by the size of the crowds at his inauguration, it seems he forgot to tell most of the forgotten men and women to turn up. Yes, in the most unsurprising move ever, the first major area of Trump's focus in his first few days as president has been disputing that his inauguration wasn't less full than Obama's inauguration. Despite newly appointed White House press secretary and baked bean with hair Sean Spicer stating at press briefing on Saturday there was no way to count how many people attended the inauguration, Uh, he also said that the pictures that the press showed, uh, comparing them to an Obama's one, were completely wrong and that a million and a half people definitely were there. A million and a half is a ludicrously hyperbolic number just to throw out and you sort of wonder if Trump is going to come back from his first G7 meeting saying that he met with a million and a half world leaders. Spicer said the press and everyone that had been there and used their own eyes and ears and said otherwise were lying and wrong because there's no better way to empower the American people by denying they have any credibility whatsoever. Crowd scientists... How do I become one of those? I'm asking for some friends. Crowd scientists have stated that Trump definitely had vastly less people at his inauguration than Obama did, but also that the Global Women's March on Saturday had far, far more people at their Washington protest than people came out for Trump the day before. Well, I suppose technically those protesting were there for Trump, but just not in the way that he might have wanted. You get the feeling the only way Donald Trump will ever really be a crowd pleaser was if he was in the stocks. According to the counsel to the president and regular flame-retardant pant wearer Kellyanne Conway, she told NBC the White House were not lying about the crowd size at the inauguration, they were just giving alternative facts. Hmm, yeah. In the same way, I guess you might not have hit someone with your car, you were just giving them an alternative lift. Or how me sitting down all day is just doing alternative exercise, and how it really seems that with him already lying just a couple of days into government, Donald Trump is definitely going to be alternatively great for America as their president. Meanwhile, in the UK, Theresa May has finally set out her Brexit plans and it seems they are to leave the EU entirely as well as leave the single market, but to somehow make sure that Britain still has access to the single market. Essentially, she has told the European Union she doesn't even want to be friends anymore, but they'd better be ready when she booty calls at 2am drunk and needs it bad. May has told the EU that they need to give the UK a fair deal or they'll be crushed. And you know, I'm sure a tiny island whose main exports now appear to be providing the rest of the world with top quality political farce straight from our parliament. You know, I'm sure we have all the power when negotiating with a union of 27 countries, right? It reminds me of a kids comedy show I did a few years ago where a seven-year-old boy told brilliant comedian Nick Doody that he could definitely kill him using karate that he'd made up himself. Oh, and it turns out that Downing Street covered up a serious malfunction with the British weapons deterrent system Trident just a few days before MPs voted to spending £40 billion updating it. It seems much like most of the government's economic plans, the missile veered completely off target in its first test in four years. Though let's be fair, if you'd had four years off, you'd be a bit rusty too, right? I mean, I've only been away for two weeks and I know exactly how it feels. Would MPs have voted differently if they'd known about this test? Defence Secretary Michael Fallon refused to answer any questions about the nature of the test, but told Parliament that it definitely was a success, which I guess means the missile was meant to fire straight down the centre, but instead went far off to the right. I was against renewing Trident on account of it being an outdated system and costing money that could be used for public services, but now I know it has the potential to backfire like a karma-driven Acme bomb, I say, hey, what the hell, let's keep it. Phew. So that is a few bits, but loads more to catch up on in this episode, including a more in-depth Brexit fallout and some uh, comments on the Trump movement so far. Yes, yes, I really can't stop finding ways uh, to try and make everything he does sound like farting. Trump movement, great. And uh, there's also an interview with top sceptic and fake news exposer Michael Marshall about, well, uh, exposing fake news. Uh, it does what it says on the tin. So thanks very much for sticking with the show, uh, despite our little break. Um, it's very, very lovely to be back. I mean, I assume you've stuck with the show I won't know till this goes out but hopefully you are listening to this in your ears uh now and uh hopefully you've missed me panicking weekly about the state of the planet and not at all enjoyed ignoring everything that's happened since January the 2nd uh which is what I've been doing I've ignored everything I had a natural holiday with sunshine and everything um it was a belated honeymoon as my wife and I had asked friends and family to contribute towards a holiday rather than wedding gifts at our wedding and uh January was the first time we could feasibly go yep essentially uh, we got all our friends and family to pay towards us being as far away from them as possible, uh, which is a great plan. So, I'm sure you're going to be very glad and not at all jealous to hear that I had an amazing time. Uh, I only got slightly sunburnt, I ate a fuck ton of mangoes and drank a fuck ton of rum. And uh, I realised that swimming with dolphins is actually a hugely stressful experience, despite what everyone says, uh, on account of them being able to swim like Michael Phelps everywhere, while I'm in the middle of an ocean accidentally inhaling seawater and losing my diabetic pump cannula and a flipper in the process. Anyway, uh, I'm all back now and this podcast is going to be back too for the foreseeable future unless my wife and I can find a way to get the same sort of gift donations uh, if we renew our vows on a yearly basis. I'm sure there's a way. Uh, Speaking of donations, thank you also to uh, all of you who have donated to the Patreon over the past few weeks. It's very, very much appreciated. Um, You'll hopefully notice a slight sound improvement uh, in this week's show, especially in the interview, due to some fancy new soundproof Bluetooth headphones uh, that I have taken to wearing most of the day now, just sort of around the house and that. Uh, I'd highly recommend it. It definitely makes watching the news an awful lot better. Um, I'm not sure it's been particularly great for my marriage, but I can't hear if it isn't anyway. So, you know, win-win. Uh, if you wish to donate to the Patreon, uh, please head to patreon.com forward slash pawpawbro, and I promise I'm going to put any monthly earnings I get in there towards better things for this show, uh, and towards being able to take more time to do things for the show. Um, thank you also for the extra few iTunes reviews as well, and if you haven't rated this show on Apple's Core site, do you see, do you see what I did there? Uh, then please do, because it does help get new listeners in, uh, which gives me even more reason to do this show, and please, if you keep spreading the word too, to get more people on board. Um... Also, always keen to hear your thoughts on this podcast. Uh, I had in my head that I'd really work... Over Christmas uh, and on holiday, I'm making the show better, but instead I just drank a lot of rum. So, uh, if you have anything that you think the show can improve on, or guests I should try and get on, then do drop me a line at Parpol Bro on Twitter, the Parpol Bro Group on Facebook, or partly political broadcast at gmail.com. If you even think about suggesting that the show needs a new host, though, I will find where you live and I'll post you weird pictures of my knees dressed as Liam Neeson, and trust me, you won't like it. Uh, Before we crack on, I'm writing a new show for the Edinburgh Fringe this year because I don't learn from my mistakes. And I'm going to be previewing and touring it all around the country. Uh, So a few dates I've got coming up already in the diary are uh, Leicester at the Leicester Comedy Festival on February the 9th, uh, which is going to be a very ropey show indeed, but I could do with a nice crowd there. Um, Then I've got two shows at Angel Comedy in Islington in London on the 21st and 22nd of February. Then Glasgow Comedy Festival on March the 12th with Beck Hill at the Hug and Pint. and the best comedy festival in the whole world but couldn't comedy festival on April the 29th. Uh, by which point I should have at least one joke I reckon. At least one. Uh, there's going to be some more dates soon as well, so uh, I'll bug you about those when they come up. Uh, but if any of those I've just mentioned are near you, please do come along. And details and links to everything are on my own website, uk. And you can sign up to the mailing list there too, where I mostly tell you to listen to this podcast once a month and come to all those gigs. So really, probably not worth it unless you love repetition. Right, on with the shit show. Firstly, This. The Deputy First Minister of Northern Ireland Martin McGuinness from Sinn Féin resigned on January the 9th, which incidentally was my birthday. Not that that has anything to do with him resigning. Well, I don't think so anyway. That would be a really weird present. No, uh, Martin McGuinness said he resigned because of the Renewable Heat Incentive Scandal, a failed renewable energy incentive that will cost the Northern Irish public £500 million. Uh, The scandal is also known as Cash for Ash, which sounds a bit like a Kickstarter for a 90s indie band. Uh, But it involved a new energy scheme where people would get paid to use renewable energy. However, the Democratic Unionist Party's Enterprise Trade and Investment Minister Arlene Foster failed to put in any sort of proper cost controls in place and it ended up being that businesses and non-domestic users earned loads of money just by heating up their properties. Yeah, it's almost the exact opposite of British gas. Uh, So loads and loads of people just heated empty unused properties just to rack up a tidy sum and ended up being a total waste of energy figuratively and literally all at once in the way that only makes journalists and crap podcasters like me happy. Anyway, to cut a lot of hot air short, uh, Arlene Foster became the first minister of Northern Ireland and while it seemed like the cash for Ash was entirely her fault, she blamed the new enterprise trade and investment minister Jonathan Bell as he didn't shut the scheme down quickly enough, mainly because it seems he wasn't in the job at the time, which to be fair is a pretty great excuse as they go. After failed calls for Foster's resignation and a failed vote of no confidence, Martin McGuinness resigned as under Stormont rules and the Good Friday Agreement. If the Deputy First Minister resigns, the whole office ceases to exist. I mean, I assume the building's still there. I don't think it just vanishes. That would be quite magical. Uh, what it does mean is it means that Arlene Foster is now out of a job as well, because Martin McGuinness has resigned. However, the DUP say that McGuinness resigned in order to just kickstart an early election, which might benefit Sinn Féin, and that is now scheduled for March the 2nd. Though Sinn Féin say that they won't come to an agreement with the DUP regardless of election results unless certain issues are resolved. Uh, Due to health reasons, Martin McGuinness isn't going to be running for re-election, so at the time of recording, Health Minister Michelle O'Neill is going to take over. But if Sinn Féin and the DUP can't come to an agreement after the election, then the British Conservative government will be in control of Northern Ireland until they do. So, a lot of people gained a lot of money, wasting a lot of energy, and now there's a dispute in Northern Ireland between political factions while a Conservative British government rule over things. Yeah, I'm sure it'll be fine, right? I mean, I suppose that's one less profitable way to heat things up. Tristram Hunt, a man who looks like how I imagine an anthropomorphised mop would look has resigned as Labour MP for Stoke-on-Trent on account of him just falling into the job of director of the Victoria and Albert Museum that's the sort of thing that just happens to the son of a baron though to be fair a museum actually suits Tristram as he's trained as a historian and when he was shadow education minister most of his policies were extremely ancient and archaic However, his leaving the Stoke-on-Trent seat is controversial as just under 70% of the constituency voted leave in the EU referendum, so it's debatable whether it will remain a Labour seat. And what makes it all worse is that the new UKIP leader and evil Moby doppelganger Paul Nuttall is running in the election too in the hope that UKIP finally get more than one elected MP. Paul Nuttall thinks he has far more in common with the people of Stoke-on-Trent than Tristram Hunt did, though having been to Stoke-on-Trent, I'm not sure that many of them are racist NHS-hating potatoes who failed to be elected to Parliament four times already. Paul Nuttall says he's changed his mind since stating that the NHS should all be privatised and that money that we give to the EU should instead be used for hospitals, quoting about £32 million a day, because he has no idea how facts and figures work. Actual fact checking proves that it's about £9 million a day less than that, so it seems that if Paul Nuttall does get in, the NHS will still be underfunded, allowing it to be privatised even easier, proving that he's actually learned fuck all. The by election takes place next month. The Oxford Dictionary Word of the Year last year was post-truth, a word that describes the actual story behind why the mailman failed to deliver your package that time, even though you were in and you saw them sigh, stick a card in your door, and then sit in their van and eat a sandwich. Sorry, I mean post-truth is a word that means relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. Bah, what a load of nonsense. Do you remember in the good old days in Britain where we didn't even use namby-pamby words like that? We just hit each other with planks of British wood and set fire to foreigners because they kept coming here and covering things in locusts. So, yeah, uh, post-truth is a bit like all the arguments we saw about the Brexit referendum in the UK, uh, in all the increasing anti-integration sentiments across the Western world, and the entire basis for the election of President Donald Trump in the USA, who got voters on side by promising to return America to an imaginary golden age and to build a wall. Because, let's face it, everyone bloody loves a wall. Well, you know, except Humpty Dumpty. Fake news has been a big part of the past year with websites like Infowars, Breitbart and White House News being filled with inflammatory made-up stories that are repeatedly shared on social media until people believe it to be true. The Pete's Gate story, for example, was where many were convinced that Hillary Clinton ran a child sex ring in the basement of an Italian restaurant because of a tweet that became an article on fake site Your Newswire. And it eventually led to a man turning up at that said pizza restaurant with an assault rifle in order to save the children. It's a bizarre notion that such a thing would be real, especially as pizza restaurants make enough dough already. No, I am not sorry. But people believe these stories to the extent that a man who thought he was saving children is now locked away for attempted assault. And while Facebook have vowed to clamp down on fake news sites and Google have also said that they're going to attempt to do something about it, what can we actually do to find out what is real and what's not? I mean, are the sites I'm getting my info from for this podcast real? I mean, is this podcast even real? Are you real? Am I real? Oh, God. Well, the person to ask about all this is Michael Marshall. Michael is a sceptical activist who does hundreds of things, including working with the Good Thinking Society who promote finding truth through evidence. And through his bad PR website and other work, he has exposed several fake news stories in papers and now lectures journalism students on how to check exactly what's real news or not. So by the end of the chat I had with him, none of you should ever have to turn up to a pizza restaurant with a gun again. Unless, you know, they accidentally put pineapple on your American heart. Because let's face it, that's fucking unforgivable. Anyway, here's Michael. Is fake news a new thing? Because you've been investigating uh, fake news and, and untrue stories in the press for quite some years, haven't you?
1: yes i have and it's it's hard to to argue that fake news is is a thing uh, as a new thing as such i mean for one thing propaganda's nothing new and you could go all the way back to probably the beginning of uh, of of politics and the beginning of the written word and people will be uh pushing stories that aren't true to serve their own agenda um but i think what we're seeing at the moment is certainly not only a higher prevalence of, of completely untrue stories, but also the mechanisms of, of untrue stories being printed, being uh, co-opted by people um, in, uh, in order to sort of forward a much more uh, clear political agenda. But um, if you, one of the things I've been doing for a, a while is just looking through um, the stories that make the newspapers and trying to track where those stories have come from because people will say to you routinely, you can't believe what you read in the newspapers... But the people who say that will then turn over the page and believe the very next thing that they read in the newspaper <laughs> because they won't apply that maxim as widely as you can. But there's some, when you really look at the details of where stories come from, there's some astonishing things. And one of the, the, the uh, studies that I often quote is from um, Cardiff University in 2008 where they looked at the um, five main quality newspapers uh, in the UK – And found that uh, between 60 and 80% of the stories that were featured there either came from press releases, from PR companies, or from news wires like uh, Press Association or or that type of thing, news agencies, um, rather than being written by the, the newspapers themselves. Now, once you have a position, a system where newspapers are routinely publishing under their masthead stories that they didn't write and often in many cases didn't contribute a word to... You have a system that's very open to exploitation from anybody who wants to push a commercial message out there, push a political message out there, or uh, generally uh, try and capitalise on this big gap we have in the system that, uh, where, where journalists don't have the time, the inclination, uh, often the expertise to actually tell whether a story is real or uh, whether it's complete nonsense.
2: So, as you said, that's, I'm guessing that's, that's partly due to journalists not having time. I'm guessing it's partly due to the lack of money now in, in journalism as well, um, the ability to pay people to properly investigate. Um, but th- what is happening then? Be- that journalists are just copy and pasting press releases and sticking them up as, as they are. Is that what's yeah, that's, happening? Yeah,
1: that's exactly it. And, and the nail on the head is that there's just no money in the news anymore. I mean, I don't know how often you routinely buy a newspaper. I know certainly I don't buy newspapers as often no, as uh, not, I should. Yeah. Uh, we expect news to be free these days, and so that means there is a, a financial squeeze on the industry. Um, and then you have things, you, you go back kind of 20, 30 years to uh, when newspaper men, uh, when uh, newspapers started being bought up by businessmen rather than newspaper magnets. You know, typically your old style newspaper owner was someone who'd made their fortune elsewhere and now wanted the power and the prestige of being an important person in society because they own a newspaper um and over time that model started to change and you you had people like uh murdoch and desmond and uh maxwell and those types of people who'd buy up newspapers who make a profit if you're going to make a profit the first thing you do is look at where you can uh, trim your costs you get rid of your specialist news reporters you get rid of some of your staff and have the, re- the existing staff uh f- fill in the gaps do the more work and um that same study from 2008 at Cardiff University found that if you compare the workload of your average journalist today to their counterparts 30 years ago, uh, people today are writing three times as much copy every single day as they would have had to have done 30 years ago. Um, and if you're writing three times wow. as much and you don't have three times as many hours in the day, something has to give and what ha- what gives is your ability to check facts to source your own stories to come up with news of your own you're, you're going to be much more prone to just accepting that press release that gets handed to you um, and the sad thing is that the people who aren't going to journalism they still need jobs and typically they end up in pr because the people who they've got the same type of skills they've got the same kind of interests and so while journalism shrinks the pr industry expands rapidly Um, and so your average journalist is now getting hundreds of emails every single day of stories given to them by PR people and if you're not savvy enough if you're not experienced enough if you're not uh, strong enough in your position at work let's say you've been working for the Mail Online for two years out of university if you, if you check the average Mail Online uh, journalist you'll find they're only a couple of years out of university they're often very very junior and uh, the ones that stay in journalism will move on from the Mail Online to other newspapers and it's kind of like you serve your apprenticeship almost by being <laughs> shouted at by the editor of the Mail um, but if you're writing four or five stories a day for the Mail Online and you haven't written your fourth story for the day yet and you're knocking on for the deadline if you don't write that story you get it in the neck from the editor this is your career on the line you won't hear the last of it it's incredibly uh, high pressure if you submit whatever press release lands in your inbox you submit that without checking it without changing a word there is no repercussion to you you've met your quarter you've Uh, put another story up on the site for the mail to get uh, clicks and advertising revenue and uh, and eyes on the site through Um, and your life is is hunky-dory from there so I can totally understand why a journalist might accept a story they didn't write Um, I can even uh, understand a situation where the journalist might think well I've got to do four or five really good quality stories today Um, it might take three hours to do a really top quality story so I'll do two really good stories and just fill the rest of my quarter with crap that's in my inbox and okay those two stories I can be really proud that I've done a really good job on but the other three stories that I published were things I didn't have the time to check didn't bother checking were complete nonsense and more than half of my work today was putting nonsense into the world and I still feel good about it because I'm thinking of the two really good stories that I did. Um, The the time also has a a detrimental effect in in the sense that you'll see stories that fall apart the moment you think of scrutinizing them in the slightest and there's a classic example i often bring up which was um you have seen the story of uh just before the birth of the first royal baby not the first ever royal baby but the reason <laughs> uh, of uh of <laughs> William and Kate. Um, there was a story in, in uh, right across all the news about some commemorative plate company who'd got wind of the fact that uh, the the royal baby was going to be a girl and had printed a lot of royal princess, welcome to the new royal princess plates. And the story was that they were getting ahead of themselves so that they could be first to market and uh, they they were wrong and now there's this company that's bought up all these hilarious novelty items, selling them as hilarious novelty items. Now if you scrutinise that story for even a second, you think, in what world is the competitive plate industry so Ultra is, is the commemorative plate industry, sorry, so ultra competitive that you can't even wait for a child to be born before you order <laughs> a the print? You miss the market if you wait for the child to be born. That's not a world we live in. Um, and also when you see the plate, it's got a picture of a baby on there. That's not the royal baby because the royal baby wasn't born. So in what world are you marketing to an audience who buys commemorative plates is interested enough in the royals to buy one but disinterested enough to not give a shit what baby is on there so long as it says well, <laughs> you know it falls apart and it was actually a, a press release the hawks put out by uh, the, the company that buys up remnant stock um of, of random different things and occasionally put out these bullshit hawks kind of articles as a way of getting press now this ran in most of the newspapers it ran in the mail the metro the telegraph all of them loved that story if you examine it for even a second even in this conversation we've, we've asked at least two questions which make the whole thing fall apart um the, the whole story is very clearly nonsense but if you're a journalist who is under pressure to fill your quarter for the day why would you go out of your way to put effort into debunking one of the stories that uh, you're thinking of publishing because not only are you then missing uh, a story from your quarter but you've wasted some of the time that could be spent on publishing a story so you've got even less time to publish your quarter of stories because you fact-checked so the sure. I, I... are all, all to part
2: and is there because I mean the, the problem I suppose with that story as well is that it is very entertaining like I like the idea of that happening um, but is there are a lot of the stories those sort of uh, you know the stories for fake news are a lot of them the entertaining ones are they the ones where something ridiculous has been made up in order for you to flick through newspaper read horror 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 oh that's made me laugh a bit or you know are there just as many that are serious stories that are giving us the wrong impression of how the world works
1: well I, I think it's right across the board and, and Often when I write about this, I've, I've got a site that I uh, run called uh, badpr.co.uk and I occasionally lecture at um, universities on, as part of their journalism course to actually sort of teach journalists to avoid, teach young journalists to avoid this kind of thing. Um, the ones that I t- typically feature in those, in those, uh, those kind of stories uh, will be the light-hearted ones or the salacious ones um, because they're the easiest ones. To, basically, the cheaper the story, the easier it is to spot that it's nonsense. But the mechanisms that allow a story like that to get published exist right up the chain so the same mechanism that allows a a nonsense story about a commemorative plate getting published uh is is right up there that can be used by um uh, anybody in a position of political influence to push stories into the news i mean what you'll find is that the the best pr is done in a very unspoken kind of way where you've just got a symbiotic relationship with a journalist that you've been working with for years and they know what it is that you're after they know what angle uh, you, you expect them to take on certain things and so long as they, you keep giving them quotes they'll keep playing your angle because as a journalist you need uh, a reliable source of, of uh, stories and uh, this sounds all a bit conspiratorial so I'll give you a kind of real world example. <laughs> um, I was talking to a PR guy, uh, I, I work in marketing in one of, my, one of my day jobs and it's not related to PR but it kind of brushes up against PR occasionally. And I was talking to a PR guy who had no idea that I write exposes of, of PR uh, in my spare time. And he was bragging to me about this um, uh, crash that happened with one of his clients who's a, a trucking kind of company. And so you was straight on the phone to w- whichever local paper it was near where the crash happened and said, I'll give you chapter and verse on this entire story as so long as you keep the name of the company uh, that the truck was driving for out of the news. I'll tell you everything you need to know about it as so long as you keep the name out. If you don't keep the name out... You won't get another story from me ever again. Wow! And because there are a, a reliable, you know, PR companies are a reliable source of stories, especially for local news, where you don't have a great deal of you. You, know, you have even more restricted budgets because if you don't buy national newspapers, you're probably much more, much less likely to buy a local paper as well. Um, would you cut off? Uh, a source of uh, access to stories, um, in order to to just publish this one extra little detail. I mean, I can see why a journalist wouldn't. But the second you make that decision to withhold a piece of the truth uh, because of the the pressures you're under, you are no longer doing kind of ethical journalism, or you're you're ethically compromising yourself as a journalist. Um, and these stories happen, I say, right across the board. The the ones that uh, trouble me a, a great deal uh, are where PR companies an easy way to get to guarantee headlines is to play to some very specific uh, stereotypical tropes. So you'll often see stories that are men are better than this than women or women are better than this than men. This happens all the kind of time. And, it, and it's because if you want to grab attention, there are two easy ways of doing it. One is to completely confirm a stereotype, in which case you turn the paper, women gossip more than men, and you get this kind of head-nodding water-cooler type thing of like, ah, oh, told you so, you see, yeah, this, uh, the, uh, all along we've known it, and now here's the, uh, the evidence. Um, but if you want the other way to get the story is to completely subvert a stereotype. Men gossip more than women. Oh, that's interesting. You see, you thought it was women, but actually it's men. So it's very easy. Either one of those will get you the the, the same kind of level of uh, attention in the press. So it really doesn't matter to the PR, to, to the PR company which of those they choose. It's just as, as a whim on the day, they could write the story either
2: way. It doesn't matter. Um, and, and that sort of brings to an interesting thing as well that you know that subverting or uh, confirming stereotypes is what a lot of political fake news has been about over the past couple of years mm. um, and uh, I suppose that the, or what it feels like to me is, uh, as a difference to, to what we've had before fake news wise is that fake news now seems to be coming directly from political sources straight into the newspaper mm-hmm. um, which I'm sure has happened for years but it feels like it's happening now more than ever before do you think that's that's the case or uh, you know where's it does it feel like there's more fake news now than there was 10 years ago
1: i I think i think it definitely does but i think that's because there is more news than there was 10 15 30 50 whatever years ago we're in a, a, a world now where uh, we are constantly um, awash with news. We're constantly flooded with news. You, have 24-hour rolling news channels. You have social media delivering news to you on a, on a constant basis. You have the uh, pressure as a journalist, in a way, uh, to the, the one of the pressures that I talk about in uh, in uh, journalism when I when I have looked into this kind of thing is that immediacy sometimes trumps accuracy. It's better to be first and wrong than last and right, because if you're first and wrong, you get all the attention, you get all the clicks, you get whatever kind of advertising you have, and you can come along with that. Um, nobody's that interested in the story that comes along two days later that tells you, actually, that wasn't true, here's the real facts. So I think uh, the the incentives are for fake news to move much, much quicker. And it also seems like, certainly, in the last uh, the last election in America, the referendum in the UK, um, the click elements of fake news have been weaponized. And I think that's kind of what right. you can see in, uh, in America. You look at uh, the, the release of anti-Hillary stories all the way through that campaign consistently. And the way that got uh, picked up by the ardent Donald Trump supporters to a point where, because of a, a stupid story that starts gaining traction online about uh, Hillary being uh, behind a paedophile ring in the basement of a pizza uh, shop, um, a guy ends up going into that pizza shop with a gun demanding access to the ba- basement so he can free all uh, the child prisoners that he is sure are there. So it seems very clear that uh, these kinds of fake stories do have real-world repercussions and that many of the people who will propagate them will argue, well, what we're doing is satire or it's, uh, you know, it, it, it's jokes. Nobody takes this seriously. But it's very, very clear that that's uh, not a, a consistent line. People, are, people have to accept that there's a repercussion to publishing fake stories. And that repercussion has currently got his finger on the nuclear button, in my opinion.
2: Sure. uh, Two things. Firstly, I think media Trump's accuracy now has a a completely different meaning to it. (laughs) That that can almost be uh, Trump's campaign slogan Um, for for the next one. Um, But but also... it's funny because i think that the a lot of people seem to be drawn to the fake news websites and the and facebook posts of social media from their friends that are probably fake because they no longer trust media because they think it's fake mm. so how do <laughs> how, how do we get to a point where people are trusting the right thing like do you think social media's uh, caused more issues with this it seems to have caused a, a really helped the increase of, of fake news in that you could just share complete nonsense with people that trust you
1: yeah, I think, I think that's exactly it. And I think there's kind of two issues that, uh, that, that trouble me, uh, really, when it comes to social media. One is that if you kind of go back to uh, even before the internet was really a big news force, um, people would read their newspapers and a Guardian reader would never read the Mail and the Mail reader would never read the Guardian. And we had these, this siloed effect. Of we only heard ideas that basically agreed with what we were thinking. And then the internet came along and put all news online, and everyone could read anything, anytime they liked. And for a while, I imagine that was quite liberating to be able to see what the other side was saying. But then you'd start going back to the same old uh, websites that would align with what you believe. And then social media would come along, and our friends are sharing everything from all sides, and we're kind of reading everything, and it's got this liberating thing again. And then you start selecting your friends based on the fact that they agree with you about what you believe, or they're likely to tell you what, the, what, uh, what you already believe, or Facebook's algorithms will just show you the posts from your friends that already, uh, already align with what you believe. So we have this constant uh, move, in, in my opinion, uh, from uh, a technology coming along and giving us access to everything, and then our natural inherent uh, desire to be siloed off into comfortable little channels. And uh, you know, the left, the left, as I'd consider myself part of, will often be criticized for existing in a bubble, but that right-wing bubble is even more impenetrable. There are very few people in, on the right arguing that what we need is to get out of our bubble and to see what the, the left are saying. Um, so I think that's one of the things that, that troubles me, is that uh, social media allows us to stay in even more uh, rigidly defined roots and routes. Um The other thing that really gets me, uh, and I think is a real problem with social media, is that and we're all I'm guilty of it. I've been guilty of it plenty myself, is that you'll share a story before you've read it, because the headline and the picture um, aligns with what you already expect to the, the story to contain. So, well, I, I believe this. This seems right to me. So I'll share this. And you haven't actually bothered reading the story. You just hit share and it ends up kind of passed everywhere. And there's one actually that I think I just saw just yesterday. And I, I'm not even I have no idea whether it's true or not, but it smells suspicious to me. Is um, the BBC's typo about Nigel Farage looking to join Fox News as an anal cyst? <laughs> yes. And I'm sure yes. you've seen this, but when, when this got passed around, lots of my friends are posting this on Twitter, lots of them are posting it on Facebook, and I was just about to go, oh, you know, share it and say, isn't this funny? And I thought, hang on, where's that from? because it was a screen grab of BBC News, but it didn't look like the BBC News website. And so the only place that I could find was from one of these uh, sort of fake satire type websites. I think it was called End News Network or something like that. But it's that or Waterford Whispers or those type of things where it's uh, kind of satire without the satire, satire without the joke in it, just a, a straight out lie that, uh, that puts a point. Now, I could be wrong, and maybe that was a BBC story, but the only reference that I can find, the earliest reference I can find anywhere with five minutes of Googling was this fake news website um i wonder how many people uh would have spent the five minutes actually googling it and maybe if i'd spent half an hour googling it i would have found that it actually was the bbc but how often do we see stories that align to what we believe and we don't spend five minutes checking we don't see what alternative sources are saying about it Uh, What even people, uh, what even sources from the complete opposite side of the political divide are saying about it? And these are the the crucial checks that we can use to try and tell if a story is true by not just looking at uh, the the one story, but trying to see how that story plays out across multiple different uh, platforms and how often we just see exactly the same words repeated with different ads around it.
2: Yeah, I, I suppose it sort of plays to the fact that most people don't have time to Google and and check things. Yeah, I mean, I I did it myself on Twitter the other day when it, somebody said Trump's speech was like uh, the speech from B movie, yeah, and uh, I and I I retweeted that, and then suddenly about half an hour later realized I don't think it is, and had a check and realized it was complete bollocks. <laughs> but you know, it was, um, but I just it, you retweet so quickly, and if you're in the middle of doing something, and I think most people if they're working and they quickly check Twitter and they quickly check Facebook, they don't have time to investigate every single story. I mean, what what should people do to, you know, Is are there easier ways to kind of filter what you get?
1: There probably aren't easier ways. I mean, we all want the, the, the easiest solution to things, I think. And, uh, you know, I'm guilty of it myself. Um, but I think... If we really want to, to combat this kind of epidemic of, uh, of fake news or propaganda, as it might, uh, might otherwise be called, I mean, I think when we're talking about fake news, we're talking about the, the blurred lines between PR, clickbait and propaganda. And that's kind of a sliding scale, I think, and I'm not quite sure which ones are on which point of the scale, but certainly it feels like it's a, a sliding scale downwards towards propaganda where we're currently finding ourselves right now is a, a wash with uh, certainly the, the American elections, a fantastic example of how uh, propaganda can be propagated with uh, the mechanisms that are currently in place. Um, So I think there isn't an easy solution to it, and it might mean that we all have to become a bit more responsible about what news we share. I mean, some of these kind of stories, it it plays into an almost gossipy element, that that salaciousness of the crowd. As uh, You see, if you think of the right-wing example of it, you see you hate Hillary Clinton because you've been told to hate Hillary Clinton because she's... Got, you know got her emails on a private email server um, incident we currently have a, a president of the united states who calls up uh national leaders from his unsecure iphone They don't seem to be as bothered about (laughs) the unsecurity, the data security there. So you wonder wonder whether they had some other prejudice against Hillary that the emails was just a proxy for. Um, But you've been told to hate Hillary Clinton. And now you see this story about Hillary Clinton actually being really evil and having this death toll over here and these children uh, that she's uh, responsible for the the kidnap and torture of or whatever there. Um, In those situations, it's dead easy to just yes that I, you're right i hate her. here's another thing i hate about it it's passing on gossip but the, the the act of passing on that gossip is to propagate the lie and you're as guilty of it as the person who came hi i'm daniel founder of
2: pretty litter cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter that's why i teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create pretty litter its innovative crystal formula has superior
1: odor control and weighs up to 80 percent less than clay litter up with it um so i think we have to restrain the part of ourselves that wants to the, the kind of the gauding crowd element of isn't look at this story here about this person that i hate i don't care if it is true whether david cameron stuck his dick in a pig or not i'm going to pass it on because it, i like the idea that it is true maybe we, we need to be a bit more responsible and uh, and not pass these things on as if they're absolutely true um but the other thing is we need to check multiple sources on stuff i mean this is this shouldn't be a radical suggestion, it's what we were all taught in history class, um, unless we were going to be following Michael Gove's uh, history curriculum when he was looking to rewrite that and take away the, 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 the checking of sources from history. Um, it's what we know is the, the way of, uh, of telling what's true. Who is saying this? Why might they be saying this? Why might they be an untrustworthy source? These are crucial skills Um, when we're evaluating history and their crucial skills as we're evaluating the uh, ever-changing and rapidly moving uh, present that the the online world gives us uh, uh, uncomfortable levels of access to.
2: We'll be back with Michael in a minute, but first... Oh, say can you see It has all gone to shine So after months of contradictory positions, incoherent speeches, Michael Flatley and weirdly dubious intelligence reports on how Donald likes Russian prostitutes to wee on the bed, we are now in the first few days of President Trump's time in office. And whether those leaked intelligence reports were true or not, willingly choosing to sleep in a bed of piss feels like the perfect analogy for what America has voted to do for the next four years. Okay, quickly skipping past lying about how many people were at Trump's inauguration, uh, something Sean Spicer has actually backtracked on slightly in his first official press briefing today, uh, or skipping over the fact that uh, Trump did a speech in the memorial room at the CIA headquarters that barely acknowledged employees who died in service and instead went on about on about how great his own inauguration was and how the press are all liars, or how the press secretary said that they then gave him a five-minute standing ovation afterwards, even though CBS News says that the Trump team actually brought a group group. group of 40 of their own uh, who sat at the front and they were the ones applauding and cheering. Also skimming over the fact that I read John Ronson's psychopath test recently and that Trump hits every single one of the 20 items on the hair PCLR checklist to see if someone has psychopathic tendencies and avoiding how weird his relationship with the Melania is or how his entire family look like they probably have a special room in their homes where they feed on dead bodies or how his press secretary says he isn't focused on statistics just on Americans doing better though without statistics how will he ever know if they're doing better? Forgetting all of that, right, forgetting all of that for a minute, I thought on today's show it was most important to look at some of the policies that Trump seems to already be signing off on and other indications of what he might do over the next hundred days, let alone four years. Firstly, Trump has already signed the global gag rule, something that sounds like it's about all the best jokes I write that everyone everywhere loves, but sadly is actually an anti-abortion policy that stops the US funding any organisations worldwide that offer or advise on anything to do with family planning. That's even if the US dollars sent over for funding uh, aren't actually used towards the areas of family planning of those organisations at all. So that's $600 million a year that now won't help over 21 million women a year in developing countries or those in conflict that currently have unsafe abortion methods. The global gag policy has been brought in and removed by several presidents. Uh, Clinton got rid of it, uh, Bush then brought it back, and then Obama got rid of it again, and now Trump, surrounded by white men in suits, has brought it back again. Trump's cabinet has more white men in it than any first cabinet since Ronald Reagan in 1981, or Dennis Nilsen in 1983. Sorry, that's a bit grim, isn't it? And very unfair to Dennis Nilsen. He killed a lot less people than Trump will have done signing that order. Trump has also signed an executive order to withdraw the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Trump has also signed an executive order to withdraw the Trans-Pacific Partnership deal or TPP, which sounds like it's for your bunghole. The TTP was a trade pact between 12 nations that covered 40% of the world's economy, and much like the TTIP that was proposed and would have included the UK, it's actually quite a damaging policy that would have given corporations obscene amounts of power over governments and would contribute to lower wage work and rising inequality. It did have some good parts too though, you know, like everything. uh, It had universal labour and environmental standards, copyrights and patents, a bit like the EU, and signatories were required to join the United Nations Convention Against Corruption. So you have to wonder, you know, did Trump sign it because he really, really wants to protect workers and halt corporate power? Or was it because environmental standards and signing against corruption weren't his bag? Well, considering Trump's also promised to lower corporation tax to 15 or 20 percent from the current 35 percent and lift regulations by up to 75 percent, it's probably the second bit, isn't it? As it sounds very much like corporate power is definitely his bag. A bag that, despite his rhetoric, is very likely made in China. It does look like Trump is going to be repealing Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act and replacing it with some sort of Republican version, which originally they said everyone would be covered by. But Press Secretary Sean Spicer has now backtracked on this on the first official press briefing. That means insurance companies probably won't be prohibited from discriminating against people with pre-existing conditions. It also looks like he's backing away from repealing Obama's executive orders on immigration. There were worries that he'd undo the deferred action for childhood arrivals, which would remove protection from deportation for hundreds of young people who arrived in the States as kids. And that's a really good thing that he's not repealing that, but I suppose the only downside is with the healthcare going even more to shit, and corporations probably screwing workers, at least if he had repealed the DACA, then those kids would have got at least a free trial of off a sinking ship. And Trump is really buddying up with Israeli President Benjamin Netanyahu, agreeing to move the US Embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, the city that both Israelis and Palestinians say is their capital. So you know, stamping down that the US thinks it's Israel's turf is sure to keep everything calm in that region, right? I mean, why not just put the Turkish US Embassy in Cyprus and combine several embassies to just have one Yugoslavian one slap bang in the middle of nine countries? The Trump organisation has presented a letter to CNN saying that he's resigning from every office and position he holds in over 400 companies, and judging by the change in tone of his recent tweets, he's allowed a staff member to take over his Twitter. Either that or he's on a shitload of Valium and autocorrect has become sentient and is trying to save humanity. Trump is still to appoint a lot of administration positions and judging by the Senate hearings last week, a number of those he's already appointed are definitely not up to the job, including Rick Perry, who was put forward for Energy Secretary and told the Senate that he had no idea that Energy Secretary meant nuclear weapons, which he has absolutely no clue about. He thought it was all to do with electricity and gas and that. You almost wonder if Trump gave him that job just so that meant there were two people in the administration, including him, that have no fucking clue about nuclear weapons. Donald Trump has promised closer ties with the UK, though again, like all Trump clothing, those ties are probably made in China too. He's meeting our Prime Minister Theresa May this Thursday, which should be interesting as his inauguration speech said he's all about buy American, hire American, so any trade deal with the UK won't be that great for us, unless they want to keep borrowing Lloyd Grossman and John Barrowman for a few weeks of the year. I'm pretty sure nothing interesting is going to get sorted anyway, as Donald is just going to keep telling Theresa lies that he's just made up, while she's going to keep telling him about plans that she doesn't have yet. Oh, and the Donalds declared the day of his inauguration as National Day of Patriotic Devotion. Obama declared his inauguration day as Day of Renewal and Reconciliation, which sounds quite nice. And man-monkey George W. Bush declared his inauguration day a National Day of Prayer and Thanksgiving. Ah, but no, old Trumpy Bance wants it to be a second birthday for himself and nationalistic tendencies. I mean, you know, National Day of Patriotic Devotion. He may as well have declared it Day for Racist Jokes and Having Sex with a Flag. So, the first 100 days of Trump is going to be very interesting as it's the closest thing we're going to have to a Samuel Beckett-George Orwell collaboration. Homage to crap, perhaps, or waiting for 1984 people to attend my inauguration. Fingers crossed that with all indications so far and the bullshit alternative fact stance that shows his administration is going to keep lying for self-benefits, that hopefully it's not just the road to endgame. And now, back to (music) Mike. it's it's Confirmation bias is a a very dangerous thing, isn't it, really? Um, Because I I, I have that very much when I read a story that makes me feel happy. I will will definitely be more likely to believe it because I just think, oh, thank goodness for that. Uh, You know, it plays along with how I believe the world should be. Um, At least that's making
1: you happy. It's the ones that make you angry or outraged or offended or uh, the the ones that stir up your baser instincts are the ones where they they get passed with much more uh, vitriol and fervor
2: yeah well it's, it's, it's a thing i read about one of the people i think it was an interview with one of the people who set up one of the very popular fake news sites uh during the u.s presidential campaign um and you know they they were saying um well for a start he was saying that he tried to set up a, a liberal left-wing one that it didn't work mm. which is uh very interesting um but also uh yeah, it was. It was. I think that the people that were the retweeting all the all the Trump stuff weren't even paying attention to any other news. So they don't see any of the negative stories about him uh, mm. because they didn't want to. Um, and so that you're just looking at news, as we said earlier, that just appeals to you. And there, of course, you're just re- retweeting and reposting things that just appeal to you, and you end up in a your own kind of self bubble. So uh, you, a big part of the responsibility, then, I guess, is on ourselves to actually care. But there's got to be some responsibility on news outlets, hasn't there? Yeah, I, th- I think there has, and this is one of the things that you'll see. Is you, you I mean, uh, there was
1: uh, an example in the Mirror uh, about a year ago, something like that. Um, maybe two years ago, something like that, where there was a lady who was saying that, uh, and this is a a totally separate example, but you'll see why I bring it in. It was a lady who was saying she was curing her cancer using a system of juices and enemas and and, uh, supplements and all sorts of things like that. Uh, And working in one of my day jobs as a a charity that challenges uh, pseudoscience and quackery. Um, I actually looked into that story and and contacted the mirror to say, why would you publish a story like this where you're praising um, these alternative cancer cures that are completely disproven uh, Maybe this lady is going to be all right because she's, she's lucky or whatever else is going on in her life is, is means that she's in, in good health. But the readers who aren't in good health, who are reading this, might follow her advice and end up in a really bad position because you've advertised to them something which is going to cure their cancer, which can't. And I was told by the health editor of The Mirror that we didn't write that story. It was given to us by a news agency. And the bylined author in that story doesn't work for us. They work for a news agency. We just printed it and that was their defense now if you read the mirror and you see the, the name of an author underneath that at the top of a story you assume you assume that author has written that story you don't assume it's come wholesale from a news agency um, and then, it, then there's a really fascinating and really dark twist when it comes to news agencies. So I'm, I'm sure some of you listeners will know what a news agency is, but it's kind of essentially like you know, your press association, Associated Press, things like that, who are normally pretty reliable. They're pretty good systems. You know, it's rather than having uh, the, the Times and the Guardian and the Mirror all having a Zimbabwe correspondent, which is going to be quite expensive to have a correspondent in every part of the world on every issue, um, you have a central kind of organization who posts reporters to different places collates all of that information and then newspapers pay a a sum each year to have access to the feed of all news and then they select the stories that they want to take for themselves. And that's normally a great way of disseminating the initial starting points of stories. But first of all, a news agency's responsibility isn't to be truthful, but to be accurate. And this is a very technical distinction, but it's really important because if Robert Mugabe, which is the example that I always give, let's say Robert Mugabe gave a speech tomorrow saying that um, I am the greatest president any African nation has ever known. Um, If you're going to report that accurately, you put the words of his speech, you say where he gave it and how many people turned up and what time it was. If If you want to report it truthfully, you say why he's lying. But if your onus is only on reporting accurately, you don't do that contextualization, which turns an accurate report into a truthful report, which turns a stub or a report into news. So if you're just reporting news agency copy verbatim anyway, you're already in a problem because you you can be missing the vital step that puts what's being said and done into context. Then you have the issue that that so many news agencies now are actually uh, filled with an awful lot of press releases and PR from commercial PR companies, because they know if they can't get it to the journalist, they'll put it in the news agency instead, and the journalist will trust the news agency regardless. And we're even in a position where PR companies buy up news agencies, so they'll put out maybe four real stories. And then the fifth one will be one of their commercial PR pieces that they couldn't get past the journalist when they tried directly. So they'll pop it in their news agency instead and suddenly it gets printed in the
2: Wow. I mean, because it's that the the thing of uh, accuracy over truth, I guess that's why, you know, this past weekend we've had the story of uh, uh, President Trump's press secretary, Sean Spicer, has said uh, that the press have lied about how many people turned up to the inauguration uh, and that it was less than Obama had. Um, And I've seen people, again, mainly across social media, sort of criticise news news agencies for not saying they're telling lies. Um, But I guess if they're just reporting accurately, they just have to report what Sean Spicer said. They don't have to report the truth. Of what he said, or the or the uh, the facts of it.
1: Yeah. Essentially, yes. I mean, that's what a journalist should do. You know, that's, that's why a journalist would go in and say, well, this picture very clearly shows this amount of people. Here's a picture of the Obama uh, inauguration, estimated uh, Obama re- inauguration with these kind of numbers. We spoke to a think tank that analyzes uh, the number of people in pictures, you know, crowd mechanics. We spoke to the Washington subway to see what uh, traffic was going on that day. And from that, we can surmise that this is an untrue claim from the president of the United States and his team that's journalism the bit before that was reporting what what you know you report what is said and and, uh and how it's said um that line is incredibly important and needs to be preserved and the more that line blurs, um the more we will just accept the the claims of outright propagandists and it's very very clear that the trump team has absolutely no problems with lying and that's been true throughout his uh, campaign it looks like it's gonna be true throughout his presidency and it's it's Uh, Even more important then that uh, the the news media in America and around the world um, prick the bubbles of those lies because we we can't allow propaganda to, to go unchecked in that way.
2: And it's, I mean, it's 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 Trump. It's what we had over here with with Brexit as well on both sides of the Brexit argument, um, where things were just reported without being investigated whatsoever. But do you think that there could be an alternate effect of of politicians using fake news so so much that where where people need more investigating, sort of almost demand it? Because, like I said, you know, I've seen people everywhere sort of saying to BBC, "Why aren't you saying they're lying? We can all see it." Do you think that it's it's gonna cause demand for it from news? Do you think news is gonna have to adapt maybe? I think it's very, very hard. Oh, I'd like hopeful? to say yes. Um,
1: yeah, I'd like to say yes, absolutely. But I think there's there's a couple of issues that are holding us back from that. One is that the budgets aren't going to go up for news agents uh, for news uh, news companies, new public publishers. Um, I don't see a world in which there is a sudden swing back towards everybody giving newspapers money again. I just don't see that world happening, not, not to the same degrees that it used to be. No, I don't see a world where we're all either buying newspapers every day and having a, a bit of dead tree delivered to our house with some words on it on a, on a daily basis, or where we're all en masse subscribing to, to online news. So I think that's already going to be an issue, is that the budgets aren't going to go up for the kind of fact-checking, independent sourcing of stories that would be required. Um, and yes, there may well be uh, organisations that step into the breach, People like um, full fact and, and fact check organizations, things like that. But those are reactive rather than proactive. So they are the story that comes along a day later or as quickly as they can um, that debunks a story that's already passed its way around the world a couple of times. And, you know, been shared on Facebook a million times and, and had the level of, uh, of uh, influence and potential damage. And this is one of the things I come back to actually when it comes to PR in the news is that I've had these conversations with people who are very involved in PR. And their opinion, but they're kind of reading this essentially, is oh, my job is to get my client's name in the papers. The angle that I use to do that is the mechanism, is the tool, but it's just a bit of fun. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have an effect. But when you work in PR, your job finishes on that story when it's published. The second you release your, your uh, story, your, your, your message, your client's name and the, the, the strap line and kind of the, the hook to the world, that's the end of your job. But for everyone else in the world, that's the, the start of that journey. And what you find is that three years later, the same stories are coming back and are, are being used to prop up a different story over here or being used as color uh, to decorate a story over here or has being pulled together into you know, these three stories that are similar are being pulled together to justify this particular worldview. Because you, you're, when you're putting out negative messaging and you don't care where it goes because you don't have that kind of onus and there's nobody around to easily fact check and, uh, and debunk you once to stop it getting out there, um, it can be used in all sorts of ways that you can't, uh, you can't predict and uh, you can't justify unless you, uh, you have that ethics up front. Um, so I think that's kind of one angle to it. Um, the other thing that I, that I, makes me uh, pessimistic about the idea that the news is suddenly going to get much much better, or there's going to be a, a big clamour from the public to improve the the level of veracity and accuracy in the news, is that you'd need to uh, be just as demanding and challenging about the stories you agree with, and we're just not going to do that. And you see that on sure. uh, you, you see that when you, you come to the uh, the Brexit uh, debate. I don't see many Leave voters who are saying, oh, well, the Remain was all Project Fear. I don't see them saying, but actually, why didn't the BBC challenge a £350 million a a a week story? Or or any of the other uh, lies, the outright lies that were told by the Leave campaign. I don't see Leave voters challenging that because they won, so it worked, so it doesn't matter. You know, I don't see Trump voters challenging... Uh, it, in great number, the claims that Trump uh, is making. I don't, and you see it even in the division within Labour. You have both sides of this uh, in, increasingly uh, embittered and uh, battle between two sides of the Labour uh, dispute, and uh, I don't see them arguing for the news to debunk the lies on their side because these ones. Maybe I don't know their lies because I agree with them because they agree with me, um, or maybe I reckon they're. Uh, <clears throat> maybe i think they're a necessary lie a useful lie it's like well yes that's a bit of a bend of the truth but it gets to where we want to be so isn't that all all right um so yeah i think until i just don't see a a situation where we can influence people's uh dedication and devotion to accuracy to the to the level that we would need to to radically change the system and if we did we'd only change one side and just uh, soften the ground for the other side to to walk (laughs) all over i think
2: but aren't there any sort of uh, laws or boundaries uh, to, you know, sort of challenge newspapers on this? Aren't there, there must be some things in place. I know you've you've taken a few newspapers to task, haven't you, about printing fake news?
1: Yeah, it's it's something I try and do uh, quite often. But part of the problem is that you have to identify who's at fault here. And I'm not sure it necessarily... I can fully blame the newspapers. I can't blame the journalists because you could say that they're very lazy, but at the same time, they're under such pressure that it must be very hard not to print nonsense. You could blame the newspapers, but they're there to make a profit. Um, If that's the way that they're making a profit because they can't turn a profit any other way, they can't invest more money, it's hard to blame them. You could blame the PR people, but they're just there to do their job. It's hard to blame right. them. So it's kind of like every cog in this wheel is turning the right way, but the whole machine it's is going humans. off a cliff. We have, have to blame that.
2: humans. Yeah, that's I it. It's so. humanity's fault. If animals ran newspapers, we'd be fine.
1: Well, I think that's it. But there's two, there's two very good examples, I think, that, uh, that show uh, that it's not only that they can't be blamed because they're under pressure. They might just not realise what they're printing is complete nonsense. And uh, my favourite example of it was there was a a company called, uh, well, there was a couple of stories that appeared in The Sun and The Express and a few other places at the same time, um, weeks apart. And one was saying about how um, women under the age of 30 are much more likely to have a one-night stand with a stranger if they're on holiday. And then the other side of that, which came up a couple of weeks later, was that on that particular summer, everybody's sex life was terrible. It was going to be terrible because it was going to be a very rainy summer and it was all going to be miserable and no one was going to have sex because it was all going to be like, everyone's going to be feeling down. So these stories were essentially saying, go abroad, you'll have sex with a stranger, stay at home, no sex for you. These were put out by a company called mistravel.com, which is a travel dating website, which matches men who've got money Uh, with women who want to be paid to go on holiday and so you sign up if you're a man who's not got a woman in your life and you pay a bit of money and you get a stranger to go on holiday with you and now obviously it's clear what they were doing in terms of pr was to say if you join our service and pay for a stranger to go on holiday with you she'll probably sleep with you if you stay at home and don't do our service you're not going to get uh sex at all um, and this is a company owned by a guy called Brandon Weird. it's a pretty sleazy business model now if you're going to be overt about it, that's fine if everybody goes in with their eyes open and saying this is probably basically borderline prostitution and everyone's okay with that and it abides by the law and stuff, then that's a, an interesting conversation to have, but couching it in this kind of story about you know, the weather and about the way that we react to the weather and sociology is a lie, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a falsehood used to kind of perpetrate this uh, this slightly icky agenda um, so I started looking for for this guy because he had two other businesses. Mistravel was one. He had whatsyourprice.com, which was an auction dating website where people bid on the girls they wanted to take for a date. Oh, no. And the one who paid the most got to keep her, essentially. Um, oh, that's terrific. It, it is all absolutely terrible. And then you've got one which is a uh, sugar, daddy, shuddy, sugar daddy dating website called Seeking Arrangements. Um, and these three, so I, I started looking for these three uh, businesses or the guy who owns them in the news. And I think it was in 2012 when I, when I did it, uh, or 2012, 13, something like that. And I wrote a piece about it in the New Statesman, I think. And what I found is over the course of 11 months, there were 49 stories promoting these businesses in the British newspapers. Um, and I think it was something like 26 or 27 in the Daily Mail that year, which is one of wow. four in the Daily Mail promoting a borderline prostitution series of businesses. Now, this was the year that the Daily Mail were declaring victory in their kind of high-profile anti-pornography campaign when they had a (laughs) headline saying, the fight back for decency starts here, in a newspaper which had published basically 25-plus adverts for prostitutes over the past year. And they would have had no idea. They wouldn't have realized that they were promoting this business. They'd just been getting press releases that had an interesting, slightly sexy, slightly kind of funny, slightly uh, kind of curious finding. And just publishing in that without doing any of the fact-checking about what murky, shady businesses they were supporting in doing so. Um, So yeah, it's not even that the newspapers – they aren't great, but it's not that they are malevolent and evil and intentionally publishing nonsense – it's that they are either under pressure or incompetent or unaware, um, having the wool pulled over their eyes. Now, that's not to absolve them because their duty is to be better than that. Um, but to, uh, to, to say we can fix them by, uh, by blaming them more is, is kind of a simplistic fix and unfortunately isn't going
2: to work sure so it's 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 hard to place the blame and we know that obviously we've got to accept some responsibility as the reader um and you've said that people i I mean there's something that i try and do as well is read say the telegraph and the guardian and the times and the independent you know just get a kind of broad spectrum to work out what the story is Mm -hmm. um what else can people do to kind of find, I suppose, the real stories? I know that there's full fact and there's a couple of places like that. Is there anything else you could recommend that that the listeners to show uh, should check out um or do to kind of be more vigilant about it?
1: Well, I think uh, there, there are a couple of things. there's not there's not a direct place I can point to you and say these people are right because the second you do that, you you're identifying a weak point in the chin that uh, that when it goes wrong, you are kind of blinkered to spot. Um, So I think we should, first of all, um, take everything being uh, as provisional until you've got multiple lines of sources on it. So don't just accept something from the newspaper that you read, but accept it from a couple of other newspapers and kind of piece a, a story together. And if you really care about something, don't stop there look a bit further you know understand what counts as a credible source don't just google and find the first thing on uh, on google of uh, some kind of website that has no real standing saying whatever because that's how you end up going into pizza shops with a gun demanding that they release all the child prisoners that they're holding um but looking for multiple lines of uh, of uh, correlating evidence is is certainly one thing um support the journalism that you care about because one of the ways that you can uh you can uh reward good journalism is by taking up a you know a membership of whether it's the Guardian or the Times or uh you know I don't know your listeners that well maybe the Express maybe they love the Express <laughs> and they think everything
2: <laughs> is <the> <laughs> <British> <laughs> I find that hard <laughs>
1: Uh, but yes, pay for the journalism that you care about, because uh, th- that at least will arm the better uh, the, or, or the, the people who represent um, the, the, uh, a better access to, uh, to, to accuracy. It'll arm them with a bit more uh, of a say, a bit more tools to, to question things. Um, and the ultimate thing for me is always question the thing you ing- agree with the most especially before you hit share on your social media of choice because it's a small thing to you at that time and you might think it doesn't matter but as we've seen over the last uh last couple of years but certainly over the last two big elections in uh, the, the english-speaking western world the accumulation of passing around stories without checking them um clearly has uh, has a, 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 an effect at the end
2: And uh, apart from apart from yourself and your bad PR website, are there any other uh, websites or groups uh, that you could recommend uh, that people get involved with or follow um, if they're interested again in this sort of thing?
1: Um, oh, gosh, that's a hard question. I mean, the, the fact checking organization like Full Fact, I think are absolutely superb. And, and you know, I'd, I'd urge everybody to check those out. And there's a, a great um, podcast by uh, uh, the BBC, uh, more or less, which is fantastic work. And people like Tim Harford and, and the, the blog that's associated with it, those are fantastic. Um, but I think more than anything, it's uh, having listeners reading the news. And looking for nonsense. And I think that's a, that's a good starting point. I mean, a, a very simple way of doing it. I mean, what, what I'm saying is that it's not uh, the, the domain of other organizations to check the facts for you. It is possible for people to do it themselves. And, and, a, and a good starting point to illustrate how easy it is to spot nonsense. And it goes back to the commercial PR that I uh, that I talk about a lot is that um, I developed a rule, which I, th- I think I developed. It, I'm not quite sure. But if you look in the fourth paragraph of a newspaper story, um, even online, and you see a business name mentioned around about the fourth paragraph, that's the company that paid for that PR to be in the newspaper. Wow. And that's, uh, it's a rule of thumb. And it kind of roughly comes back from, the, if you think of the days when... Uh, Everything was done in layouts on in actual physical uh, printing and cu- copy and paste. Meant, oh, sorry, cut and paste a pair of scissors in a paste bucket. Um, if you had to go from having a thousand words on that page down to four hundred words on that page, your editor needs to be able to get rid of a load of information very quickly. So he just cut across the bottom and leave the, the last couple of paragraphs out. Which is why the last couple of paragraphs typically contain less relevant information than the first couple of paragraphs. You kind of sequence your information by importance. So if you're a business who wants to get your uh, company mentioned in the press, you need to be high enough up in the story to survive the cut, but low enough down that you're not in the first line, and therefore makes it really obvious what the commercial interest in this angle is. And once you see it, you'll spot it everywhere. And that's just a simple way of pointing out commercial PR, but paying uh, attention to the news with a skeptical eye and uh, a critical eye, I think, is, is key, really.
2: That's a, that's a fantastic tip. Uh, although if uh, the listeners of the show are reading The Express, um, give up because you'll be exhausted within about five minutes, I reckon. Um, so, great. Um, <laughs> well, the alien fans, The Express seem obsessed with aliens. I, I, I looked at this the other day. There was something
1: like 20 stories a fortnight in The Express about how there's aliens. Absolutely astonishing. I don't know. It just shows you the world that they're living in, I suppose. And uh, Yeah, it's, yeah All-
2: it's aliens and Diana's ghosts. And uh, immigrants, Diana's Ghosts and Aliens. And in a way, I feel like their lives are far more exciting than mine. (laughs) 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 Many thanks to Michael for talking with me. Um, You can find him on Twitter at Mr. M. Marsh. And his bad PR website is badpr.co.uk. The Good Thinking Society can also be found on Twitter at Good Thinking Sock. Uh, SoC, are on their website at goodthinkingsociety.org um, Michael Marsh also does oh, I find it incredibly hard to listen to uh, but he does a podcast called Be Reasonable where he speaks to people who have completely opposing views uh, as him and he just lets them talk uh, this week I believe is someone from the Flat Earth Society uh, so have a listen if you're brave he's God, he's a brave man for doing that um, as I mentioned bazillion times before on this show uh, Full Fact are at Full Fact on Twitter and Full Fact.org and they are always, always worth checking out. Uh, And as Michael said, do keep checking as many news sources as possible and really do think before you just mindlessly retweet something that may not be true at all, uh, like most of the tweets I do from the Parpol Bro account. Uh, Then hopefully, uh, after all that, you should be able to handle the truth better than Tom Cruise fundling Jack Nicholson's nether regions. As always, if you have someone you'd like me to interview or a subject you'd like me to interview someone about, please drop me a line at ParPolBro on Twitter, the ParPolBro group on Facebook, or partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. I hope over the next few weeks to chat some experts on the French elections, uh, the Northern Irish ones, Russia, Gambia, and more on the US as well. So if you have any suggestions for any of those, then please let me know. Uh, or don't let me know, and I'll just put on a terrible accent and interview myself, and then wait for Michael Marshall to expose this show as complete and utter made-up nonsense. No, actually, uh, the first one is definitely better. Please do let me know. Brexit fallout. Brexit fallout. Brexit fallout. OK, so exciting times as no longer does Brexit just mean Brexit. Well, it does. But Brexit now also, according to the Prime Minister and Ghost of Christmas Future, Theresa May, it also means she doesn't want a bad deal. She just wants a good deal. So that is everything cleared up then, right? Well, okay, I'm being a bit unfair because Therese May did actually state a little bit more about what we're going to get from our Brexit or what she wants to get. And by get, I mean lose. Uh, Firstly, we're going to be leaving the customs union, which means you can't bring back all that booze from your trip to Cali anymore unless you pay a ton of duty. However, May has also said that she wants to keep a soft border between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, which can't be done if we leave the customs union as there'll be a duty on all trade crossing the border, which means you need some sort of border there that can't be a soft border in order to check all the duty. You get what I mean? I mean, unless she just means that the border is there, but it's made of pillows and tree bore mints. Then she said to re- uh, then Theresa May said that we might maintain an associate membership of the customs union but didn't really explain what that meant. I guess it's probably just a badge with our name spelled wrong and an occasional newsletter with early bird options for Toblerone at the duty free at Charles De Gaulle Airport. The Prime Minister says that the UK will become an Asian style tax haven if the EU don't offer us a good deal but that would affect what tariffs and trade deals we do get with the EU whilst depriving the UK of tax funding from companies. Uh, former European Commission UK official Jonathan Fool warned that the UK won't be able to buy access to the single market once we leave it. May wants to leave it to stop free movement, but if she wants access to it, the only deals are becoming part of the European economic area, which requires accepting free movement. May said no deal from Brussels was better than a bad deal, uh, which is a weird thing to say. Uh, it basically shows that we're no longer in the let's have our cake and eat it stance as a country, but more the don't even have the cake, as it's not my very favourite cake, so I'm just going to sit here and starve to death, and that's your fault, that is. The financial institution JP Morgan has warned that Theresa May's threats are very dangerous for the UK, and if we just fell back to World Trade Organisation's tariffs, we'd lose business with European countries overnight, costing the UK considerable jobs and finances. The UK's ambassador to the EU, Sir Ivan Rogers, resigned a few weeks ago blaming muddled thinking amongst ministers and let's face it, getting a job where you have to bang your head against walls to test their density would be largely less frustrating. Meanwhile, a House of Commons briefing paper suggests that 5,000 EU laws apply in the UK and reviewing, amending or repealing them all could take decades. So it's even more like, I'll have what I think is a cake but I'm not really sure and I'll just eat it very slowly to the point where it's gone off and will probably kill me. Meanwhile, Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour leader, says he's going to impose a three-line whip, which I think is a bit like a cat-of-nine-tails, for the Labour Party to vote in favour of triggering Article 50. But a number of Labour MPs, especially those from Remain areas, look set to defy it. Several other Labour MPs, including Yvette Cooper and Chuka Munna, are now towing the ban-free movement altogether line, because they obviously have a ton of those racist Labour mugs left from the last election that they really need to sell off. Personally, and look, I don't throw my personal opinion around that often on the show, but I think that as much as I wanted to remain in the EU, the UK have voted to leave, whether I agree with it or not. And so we probably should. We should just make it the very best Remain-like leave possible while removing laws that stop the government from bailing out the steel industry and repairing some of our exports. I'm absolutely baffled by criticism of Corbyn that says he needs to appeal to non-Labour voters and then, when he does, they say he's doing the wrong thing. I mean, what is the guy to do? I don't know, but he should probably try shaving off the beard and wearing a hat and calling himself Keremie Jorbin, and I reckon he'd have at least a week of everyone leaving him alone before they realised. Brexit Minister David has says that the UK will leave the EU even if Parliament vote down the deal because he truly believes in British sovereignty, obviously. And so surely the very best option now for opposition MPs is to fight for a deal that doesn't just leave us with our face in old, old mud cake, not having eaten any of it and starving to death while various European birds peck out our cake-filled eyes. Either that or we all join the 130,000 people who've applied for an Irish passport since June last year. Does anyone have grandparents who are born in Ireland and fancy adopting 16 million people? I mean, that's a lot of birthday cards to send out for an elderly couple, sure, but think of all the visitors they get. That'd be lovely, wouldn't it? Well, assuming of course those visitors would be able to travel back to visit, of course. Depends on the soft border. Oh god, this is hard. What are your thoughts? Uh, Have your opinions on Brexit changed or, well, remained as time has passed? Uh, Drop me a line at the usual channels and any unusual ones that take your fancy. I like whale mail myself, Uh, if you don't know what that is, that's huge letters or postcards that are popped into the ocean and then harpooned illegally by a Japanese fisherman and eaten. Try it, or don't. That's all for this week's partly political broadcast, Uh, there was loads I couldn't fit on this week's show and so depending on next week of news I will try on episode 45 to look at Labour's new attempt at a populist stance that's working so well no one seems to have noticed, Uh, the government's attempts to sell off the Green Investment Bank and Theresa May's new plan to invest in science, research and innovation with her first step being obviously to discover what any of those things are as she's clearly not used any of them before now. I'm really keen, though, uh, this year on the podcast to find out more from you, the listeners, or the listener, I don't know know how many of you there are, uh, maybe you share headphones, uh, that what I should be talking about on this show, I would know from you. Uh, There's so much to tackle every week in the news now that I'm concerned I'm repeating myself and certain themes quite a lot. Do you know what I mean? There's so much to tackle each week that I'm concerned I'm repeating myself on certain themes quite a lot. Do you know what I mean? Ah. Uh, 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 seriously though, uh, do drop me a line at Palpo bro on Twitter, the Palpo bro Facebook group or partly political broadcast at gmail.com if you have any thoughts on subjects that I've missed so far or things you'd like me to talk about. Also, please do give us a review on the iTunes, tell everyone you've ever known to listen in and shout me a dollar or two on the patreon.com forward slash Palpo bro if you can. Have a great week or failing that, have some week gratings. This week's show is brought to you by letters sent by Whale Mail and the numbers 1.5 million, which, when converted into reality, is about 12. But they're all quite big and move really, really fast.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well,